It's time for In the Know with the fine folks at Nueces County AgriLife Extension, your source for great information and education in your home county. Now sit back and relax and enjoy. Here's your host, Kevin Gibbs and Norma Munoz. Thanks for joining us on In the Know. Today, our guest is Charis York. Charis is the Program Director of Green Infrastructure and Stormwater with Texas Community Watershed Partners and Texas A&M AgriLife. Thanks for joining us, Charis. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm excited about the information you're going to share with our audience today. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in Extension? Sure. So I am based at an office in Houston called the Texas Community Watershed Partners, um, but I'm also part of the Disaster Assessment and Recovery Program at AgriLife Extension. And so we like to call our office the blue sky side of disaster. Um, we are not the folks who are going to go out after a, a disaster occurs and, and help respond um, what we do is we spend our time working with communities and landowners to help prepare during blue sky times or normal times um, to make them more resilient, especially when it comes to thinking about our water um, and our water quality and flooding and sort of all aspects related to that. And so you'll hear me talk today about green infrastructure and how we can use nature-based solutions to help us to prepare. Well, thanks, um, Charles, for that. You know, I hadn't really thought about um, that being part of our disaster assessment and recovery program. So that's really interesting uh, and understandable, right? <laughs> yes, it's it's. Um, we think about disasters when they're bearing down on us or directly after, but there's a lot of things that communities do. Uh, between those events to become more resilient and to help prepare so they can bounce back. And that is actually a, a big focus of what we we do is um, trying to get people to think about that and how we can do better. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you, why is stormwater runoff such an important topic? Sure. So stormwater runoff, when we say that, what, all that we mean is whenever it rains, that water that's running directly across the land, whether it be um, across our, our driveways or our lawns or agricultural areas or natural areas, some of that water soaks into the ground and some of it doesn't. Um, and when that water runs across the surface, it's going to pick up anything it comes into contact with. So if there's things on the ground um, you know, think about when you're in a parking lot and you look down and you see those those oil sheens and slicks, you know, that gets picked up in the water. Um, anything that's on our uh, lawns, like maybe it's dog poop or, um, you know, feral hog uh, feces and uh, all of that is going to get picked up in that water and it's going to move into our waterways. Um, and those can be sources of pollution. So that's a water quality issue. The other side of the coin is the water quantity issue. All of that runoff um, could potentially lead to flooding and issues like that. So there's a lot of reasons why we should be thinking about our stormwater runoff. And we're a big state. I mean, we've got a lot of wide open spaces. So I can just imagine what it's like in other places where uh, like New York City or someplace where there's a lot of pavement and concrete and all of that. 
Um, but even with all of our wide open spaces, it is uh, pollution, uh, rainwater pollution and runoff pollution a big problem here? It is. It kind of depends on, on where you are in the state. Um, there's some great maps from TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. They have an online surface water quality viewer where you can go in and, and you can see a map that shows all the streams in Texas. Um, and then you can also see which ones are considered impaired. And by impaired, I mean they're not meeting the use that the state of Texas says that they should. Um, and it's there's a lot of red when you look at that map. I, I don't have an exact number of water bodies, but I can tell you that the most recent TCEQ report lists over a thousand assessment units um, as being impaired. And assessment units is kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around. It's It's not necessarily individual creeks because they separate the creeks or the rivers into different units. Um, but it, it gives you kind of a measure, a number to kind of start wrapping your head around. And the most common impairment in Texas is for high levels of fecal coliform bacteria. And what that means is you should think of things like E. coli. Um, that's one of the indicator bacteria that we use when we look at the water and we test the water. And so um, it represents any type of bacteria that might be in the water. Um, but fecal coliform comes from the gastrointestinal tract of warm-blooded mammals. So it's inside of me, it's inside of you, it's inside of things like our pets, our dogs, cattle, feral hogs, all of those sor sorts of things. Um, so yeah, it's an issue. Um, we do tend to see more water quality impairments where there are more people. Um, so there seems to be a correlation there. But uh, that's not a hard and fast rule, that there are rural watersheds and rural water bodies and urban that all have um, water quality issues. So as I'm listening to and, and taking in everything you're saying, and I'm jotting down my own notes over here for myself as well, it seems like that's covering almost everything. So is all stormwater then polluted? And, you know, you've talked a little bit about where the pollution comes from, but it seems to me like that seems like every, all the stormwater is polluted. So is that true or not? Not necessarily. So when rainwater first falls, there's no pollution in it, right? When it's coming right. out of the sky, um, it is clean, it is good, it's ready to go. Um, it just sort of depends on where, where it flows after that, what it flows across. And just because it flows across the parking lot doesn't mean it's going to pick up everything that's there. Um, that parking lot might be fairly clean. Um, but the more uh, of the built environment that that water flows through, typically the more pollutants that's going to pick up. But again, there's, there's an opportunity if there's ag production, if there's um, cattle, those sorts of things can all potentially be sources but also, it's how close that is to the water body. So, for instance, if we have a buffer on the edge of our, our cattle pastures and the water is flowing through um, some taller grass and some natural vegetation, um, that'll slow the water down. And some of those pollutants or um, some of that bacteria can start to uh, be removed. And so it's cleaner before it gets to the stream. So, yes and no. Not 
I would say not all stormwater is polluted. Um, but it just really depends on what's going on in that particular area. Makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. And, and it seems like, um, like we hear a lot more about it now because we're, we're trying to do a better job of, of improving things. And um, I, I have no idea whether it's worse now than it's ever been. I would guess probably so because the population is higher than it's ever been. Well, and I think part of it also is we have more data now that the state will not list a water body as impaired until it has a, a several years worth of data to make that assessment on. So they're out there collecting water samples um, quarterly or maybe even more frequently than that and trying to get a, a good picture of what's actually happening before they decide to list a water body as impaired. Um, and so they really do take some time and do some due diligence to make sure that we're making a good decision. Um, and so part of it is, is there's more funding and more available to test, then we just have a better snapshot of what's happening. <laughs> that makes sense. So it seems like we can really cause some big problems if we're not careful. Um, we're going to actually take a break right here. We're going to pause for a short update from 4-H, and then we'll be right back to continue this important discussion, Sharice. Thanks for joining me. Logan Bauer for the 4-H update. It's almost January and that means the Nueces County Junior Livestock Show is just around the corner. My guest today is Kaylin O'Brien. Tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in 4-H, Kaylin. Howdy, my name's Kaylin, like you said, and I'm currently a junior at Texas A&M University. I'm double majoring in agricultural communications and journalism as well as agriculture leadership and development. Um, it's been three years since I was in the 4-H program. I started in third grade showing and then up until uh, seventh grade is when I started shooting through the 4-H program. And then in high school, I showed through FFA and continued shooting through 4-H. That is awesome. Um, I'm sure everyone is getting excited about the the upcoming stock show. Um, since you've had experience being a 4-H'er, uh, what can people expect this year? Yeah, so there's a lot of great events that are going on this year through the Livestock Show. Um, this upcoming week in January, we have our horse show. We also have the Queen's Contest happening um, on January 8th, which is super exciting. And all throughout the week, um, it's going to be filled with great shows. Uh, my personal favorite is the hog show on Thursday because that's what I showed and that's what I'm used to. Um, Friday is going to be the cattle show. And then Saturday, we're going to have our sale where all of our awesome buyers come out and support our youth. And so that's just a lot of um, fun activities that um, can be expected throughout this livestock show. That is awesome. Um, how can people find out more about 4-H and how to get involved? Yeah, so there's a lot of great resources out there. Two off the top of my head are the 4-Honline.com as well as the ncjls.org website that they can go to where they can also find all information about 4-H as well as our schedule for this livestock show. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for joining us. Um, this has been your 4-H update. And now let's learn more about green infrastructure. Hi, 
Hi, we're back with Charis York, Program Director of Green Infrastructure and Stormwater with Texas Community Watershed Partners and Texas A&M AgriLife. Wow, Charis, um, I never realized how big of a problem stormwater runoff could be. Um, you have provided us with a wealth of information, but um, I do want to ask you, so um, is this where green infrastructure comes into the picture? Yes, and I'm so glad you asked about that because I feel like the first part of this podcast was kind of what's the problem? And you're probably all thinking, what in the world can we do about this? And exactly. Part of the answer is green infrastructure. And that's the term I'm going to use. Um, you might have heard it called blue-green infrastructure or low-impact development or LID or LID or sometimes it's just called stormwater best management practices or BMPs. There's um, there's a lot of different names for the same type of thing, but they all kind of boil down to um, an approach to land development or redevelopment that really works with nature. And so the idea is, is using nature um, to capture that water close to where it falls so that it's not running across and, and picking up all those pollutants, or if it does pick up those pollutants, using the soil and the plants to really filter and clean that water before it moves into our creeks and our streams. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping you're going to be able to tell us some things that homeowners and business owners can do to, to help uh, improve stormwater runoff and, and to keep pollution from making its way into our stormwater systems. For sure. There are a lot of different things. One of the things that we talk about in my program, which is called Green Infrastructure for Texas or GIFT, um, is we talk about how we can look at green infrastructure across the landscape. So everything from small practices that you can do at an individual home or business up to what we would consider mid-scale practices that are maybe for a neighborhood or a community up to large scale, maybe, you know, protecting, preserving, and conserving 500, 5,000 acres of land for the natural benefits that those give us. Um, but to kind of bring it home to what could a, an individual homeowner do, probably one of the easiest things to get started with is, is collecting uh, rainwater, harvesting rainwater off of your roof or off of your driveway that are impervious surfaces, collecting that into a barrel or a tank or a cistern, um, and then using that water for something. The most common usage would be for landscape irrigation, just collecting it and then putting that water back um, onto your flower beds or, or whatever, your lawn to irrigate. Um, but that's not the only use for it. You know, there's situations where it's used to flush toilets or wash vehicles. Um, the idea is to collect that water, but give it a chance to soak into the ground somehow or to hold it for a little while while it's raining and then release it later when you need to use it. That definitely, those are great um, ideas and, and definitely a way to um, manage that and, and manage it in a way that's beneficial many in, in many ways, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I know you mentioned a couple of things, you know, you mentioned putting it back into the, into the land or washing vehicles, that, that type of thing. But can you maybe go a little bit far, um, further um, into that and 
talk specifically about um, what the benefits are of making these types of changes, maybe long run, uh, in the long run, or um, even, you know, as just a homeowner or business owner? Sure. So really the idea is to take that water um, that would regularly run off our roofs and our driveway and to slow it down and to get it to soak in um, where it's falling. And so rainwater harvesting is just one example. Another really um, common thing that could happen at an individual home or a business is something like a rain garden, where we're actually directing the water into a specialized landscape um, where we've dug down uh, anywhere from about 12 inches to to three feet, depending on what's there, um, and really come back and, depending on what the soil's like, amend that soil so that it has better water holding capacity and, and trying to soak that water into the ground um, with some native vegetation plants that can handle the, the wet that we're going to put them through, but also the dry when it's not raining. Um, and to use those, those that good, healthy soil ecosystem, all those microbes that live in there can actually break down pollutants if we can get that water to soak into the soil. Now, where I live, we have a lot of clay in our soil, um, and water doesn't naturally like to soak into there. So we have to amend it with things like compost. Um, we use expanded shale or sand um, to really get the water to, to get down into the soil and to um, let, it, let it soak in so that cleaning process can happen. It's amazing. it's amazing what the soil's able to do, isn't it? It really is. And even if maybe a rain garden's not your thing, just focusing at your home at really building healthy soils, whether it's in your actual uh, planting beds or especially in your, your lawn itself, really taking the time to know what's in your soil, um, to add that compost and to really get that soil ecosystem going. Um, because the healthier your soil is, the more water that it's going to hold, right? It really becomes a sponge. Um, and then if you're using native plants and all of that's really going to work together to, to hold more of that water where it's at to get it to soak in and, and to clean up that water and having less of it um, run off. But I would say my biggest tip um, is to start small, to start with one one thing at a time. Don't try to revamp your entire landscape at your home or your business or at a park all at once. Just, you know, figure out one first step you can take. Maybe it's planting a couple of native plants. Maybe it's building a rain barrel. Um, start with something, figure that out, and then add the next part and the next part and the next part because something is better than nothing. Well, and that's really great information because I think, you know, may, we do have clientele and individuals out there that are very versed in um, in this, but we also have, you know, homeowners out there or even, you know, younger individuals who maybe are just starting with their first home or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that, in, the information, and, and I like what you said, like start one thing at a time, right? Um, don't try to make a huge change because that that usually doesn't work out well <laughs> you know um in in my discipline family and community health we talk to people about making one change at a time right you don't want to you can't change everything you do 
health wise at one time you you can try but a lot of times it's you're not as successful and i kind of see the relation here as well yes and really you know um especially new homeowners but anyone who who owns a home or a business knows that there's so many moving parts and so many things happening and you know there's never enough money to do everything that we want and sometimes it feels like you have to you know rip up every flower bed and and start from scratch and you know, if you need some plants, just, you know, buy a handful of native plants and put them in and, and you're moving in the right direction. So, uh, that's yeah. One, that's one of the big mistakes in horticulture, too, is is going and buying a bunch of plants and you don't even have the beds cleaned out or anything yet. So <laughs> we want to skip to the fun part that. first. We've all done that. Hey, uh, I heard the term swells. Can you tell us what that refers to? Sure. A swale is a shallow um ditch or depression that you use to move water from one spot to another so for instance if you were wanting to uh build a rain garden in your backyard you wouldn't want to put it right against your house because you don't want to mess with the foundation there by adding water and, and things so you'd want to put the rain garden maybe 10 to 15 feet away from your house but if you're trying to get water coming from the gutter you need to get it from your downspout to the garden so you can just make a shallow depression a couple of inches deep. Um, maybe it's a, a foot or two wide that will help direct that water into the rain garden. Give it a, a path of least resistance to flow through. Um, but that concept of swales can work almost anywhere. Um, I've seen them work to move water through a park. They can work on the side of the road um, instead of a, a culvert. So the idea here is Anytime the water is in contact with the plants and the, the soil, the plants are going to slow it down, even if it's just grass, um, and it's going to give it a chance to soak in. But then also when it's an open system like that, there's a chance for evaporation. When you put water into a pipe or to a concrete culvert, um, it doesn't really have that chance to evaporate or for the plants to use it or any of that. So it's another way to take that, that water that's moving across the land to help direct it where we want to go, but also give it a chance to, to slow down and to soak in and, and use those natural things like the plants in the soil to help clean it up a little bit. So those low areas in our yards when we were a kid that we used to go and wait around in after a big rainfall, that was a swale. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it a natural swale. But that's, that, that's actually a great point that you mentioned that if you have a spot like that in your yard, um, you can look at converting that into a rain garden pretty easily. The first thing I would say is get some plants that like to be wet, um, plant them in there, things like some of our native irises or our swamp lilies or some of the um, hibiscus, the Texas star hibiscus likes to be a little bit wet. Um, start planting things like that in there and you'd be surprised how fast those plants are using the water and kind of evapotranspirating it back up into the air. Um, and you're pretty quick going to start see that water sit for a shorter and shorter amount of times as those plants get established. So rain gardens, you know, I talk about them in a way that's a little bit complicated, but they can be pretty simple. Yeah, I'm getting the big picture is just that we have to move the water over a longer space so that it has a chance for more of it to make it into the, the ground. Yes, or depending on our soils, if you have really sandy soil, then the water likes to soak in. If you have more clay, it's a little bit harder to get the soil and um, the water into the soil. And so sometimes we have to amend that soil or, or make it easier for the water to start to soak in. 
And and then I, I, I saw on the news the other night they were showing um, a building, I think it was somewhere up New York or somewhere, that, that had a green roof. Um, is that a trend that's going on right now? And how difficult is that to do? It is. And um, you might have seen those pictures in New York, but we um, see them here in Texas. Um Webster, Texas, it's, I guess, kind of a suburb of Houston. Um, I know it's real close to where I live, um, and I drive past several buildings every day that have green roofs on them. Um, and what that means is the traditional roof has been changed, so there's actually a garden on top. Um, you have to be careful because you're going to put a lot more weight on that roof with the plants and the soil and then all the water the soil will hold, so you have to make sure the roof um, is strong enough to hold all of that additional load. Um, and then also you need some waterproofing on the roof so that we're not accidentally uh, flooding the whole building. Um, but you can take that impervious surface that the water is running off of and you can turn that space into a garden. Um, so there's several examples around Houston and around Texas where that is happening. Um, it's really cool. Uh, and there's programs like uh, the city of Chicago has a whole green roof program where they're working on converting a number of their roofs um, because not only for the water aspect, but also it helps reduce energy bills because um, the soil on the roof helps insulate the buildings um, and it helps improve uh, air quality because you're getting more plants out there producing uh, oxygen. And then it also helps reduce the temperatures in the city. So there's a lot of benefits that come from things like green roofs that are not just related to water. I'm guessing the old pioneers that had sod roofs didn't know they were trendsetters, right? Well, you know, that's actually a really <laughs> great thing is um, most of these practices that I'm talking about are, are not some crazy new idea. They're things that we have done as humans for a very long time, but have kind of forgotten about or moved away from. You know, rainwater harvesting, the Mayans used to do that. Um, that's how people used to get their water. Uh, and we've kind of moved away from these practices, and it's more about uh, reminding folks that these are still out there and that nature can be used to our benefit. And so uh, let's do that. That's kind of like what is old is new again. We should have been continuing on that path all along, right? But it comes back around, and that's really great. Yeah, all those folks that uh, maybe weren't so educated were pretty smart. <laughs> yes, they were. Yes, they were. Yes, yes. We're just about out of time here, so. Yeah, so Charles, this has been very eye-opening, and we, we've, I've learned, and I think we'll all learn, that we really must do a better job, um, you know, and I, I appreciate you being here with us, and, and, um, providing us your experience and your your knowledge. Um, it was great having you here with us today. Well, I'm glad that I could be here. Um, and I just want to mention a couple of places where people can find more resources if they're interested. Um, there's the AgriLife Learn uh, platform, agrilifelearn.tamu.edu, that has a number of publications. If you search things like rainwater harvesting or rain gardens, um, there's some really great information there. Or then my program website, which is agrilife.org slash gift, G-I-F-T. Um, so we give you examples and resources there as well. That's, that's um, perfect. And we'll go ahead and make sure that those, um, those 
addresses get um, posted in with the podcast as well. So as we leave today, here's an update from Family and Community Health. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. in Nueces County explores many topics and is full of educational information for everyone. In Family and Community Health, we strive to help individuals and their families better themselves, whether that is by attending one of our diabetes management programs like Cooking Well with Diabetes or participating in our eight-week physical activity challenge walk across Texas. In addition, our Step Up Scale Down 12-week program assists individuals with weight loss and weight management by discussing the importance of regular physical activity and making healthy food choices. Our Dinner Tonight Healthy Cooking Schools provide individuals with meal planning and making easy, nutritious, and smart meal choices. Give us a call at 361-767-5220 and ask for either Norma Munoz or Lynn Mutz to discuss any of our upcoming programs and how you can participate. And now here's a quick overview of some of the programs your family and community health agents were involved with in 2021. This year, I worked with the Nueces County Human Resources Director and Specialist to plan and implement the Nueces County Employee Wellness Program virtually. This program is not new, and we in Extension have been a part of this program for years, but as with many things, COVID-19 made meeting in person challenging. After much discussion, we planned a monthly virtual program in which participants were provided educational topics from chronic disease management, to healthy meals, to mental health, mindfulness, and stress management. Along with myself, several of my county, district, and state co-workers helped to provide programs that fit within their skills and knowledge to provide the participants with the best learning experience possible. Planning to continue working with the Nueces County Employee Wellness Program in 2022 is in the works. Here in Nueces County, COVID-19 response continued into 2021. As most businesses, agencies, and school districts, extension continued to be challenged with reopening and moving towards our new normalcy. Extension continued working with the Corpus Christi Nueces County Public Health District COVID-19 Task Force through April of 2021 to provide contact tracing for Nueces County residents. In addition, we assisted with the vaccine administration and support of the mass vaccine drive-through clinics in Robstown. We continue to act as liaisons for schools and local chambers of commerce to provide Binex training and testing kits for their faculty, staff, students, and members. We have and will continue to follow best practice guidelines to ensure the safety of our community. You have been listening to In the Know with Nueces County Extension. Thank you for spending a little time with us today, and we hope that you join us again soon. You can catch us on Spotify, Google Podcast, or by going to our website, nueces.agrilife.org. While there, you can also take a look at upcoming Texas A&M AgriLife events. Again, thanks and have a great day. Mm-hmm.